0: Well, as you might know, for over 60 years, Mother Teresa served the poorest of the poor in the slums of Calcutta, India. She felt called to Calcutta to reach out to those who Jesus called the least of these. And she dedicated her life to doing what Jesus tells his followers to do in Matthew chapter 25, verses 25 and 26. Mother Teresa went into the slums and she gave food to the hungry. She gave clean water to the thirsty. She gave a home to homeless strangers. She gave clothes to the naked and she gave free medical care to those who were sick. Well, just three and a half years before she died, at the age of 83, Mother Teresa was invited to Washington, D.C. to speak at the annual National Prayer Breakfast. She accepted the invitation and on on February 5th, 1994, Mother Teresa stepped up to the podium in front of 4,000 people. And in that crowd of 4,000 were some of the highest level leaders in the United States, including the leader of the free world, who at the time was President Bill Clinton. Well, President Clinton's wife, Hillary Clinton, was also in the crowd that day, along with the Vice President, Al Gore, and his wife, Tipper Gore. Other leaders from across Washington, D.C., were also there in that crowd. And that frail little Catholic nun stepped up to the podium. Her head didn't even reach above those microphones that were mounted at the podium. So if you were sitting right in front of the podium, you couldn't even see her. You'd see maybe the top of her head because she had clocked in at five foot zero inches tall in her earlier years, but by the age of 83 she'd become a bit bit hunchback and she was maybe 4'10 at the tallest. But I'm curious, when she stepped up to that microphone, what did she say? If you had been given that same opportunity to speak to the leader of the free world and 3,999 other leaders, what would you have said? Well, what would you have said? Well, here's what Mother Teresa said. There on February 5th, 1994. She said, I feel that the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion because it is a war against the child, a direct killing of the innocent child, murder by the mother herself. And if we accept that a mother can kill even her own child, how can we tell other people not to kill one another? How do we persuade a woman not to have an abortion? As always, we must persuade her with love as we remind ourselves that love means to be willing to give until it hurts. Jesus gave even his life to love us. So the mother who is thinking of abortion should be helped to love. That is to give until it hurts her plans or her free time to respect the life of her child. The father of that child, whoever he is, must also give until it hurts. By abortion, the mother does not leave, does not learn to love, but kills even her own child to solve her problems. And by abortion, that father is told that he does not have to take any responsibility at all for the child he has brought into the world. The father is likely to put other women into the same trouble, so abortion just leads to more abortion. Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love. But to use any violence to get what they want. This is why the greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion. Wow. The little four foot, ten inch woman steps up in front of the greatest leaders in the United States and dares to speak those words that she believed God had put on her heart. And once again, I ask, what might you have said? If you had been given that opportunity, as we look at Acts chapters 24 and 25 today, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul was given a a very similar opportunity that Mother Teresa was given an opportunity to speak before some of the greatest leaders he'd ever been in the same room with. And we're going to see what the Apostle Paul had to say when he was given that opportunity. Well, in the last verse of Acts chapter 24, uh, Dr. Luke tells us that there in the city of Caesarea, Governor Felix uh, left Paul in prison for two years. He didn't leave him there because Paul was guilty of any crime. He left him there because Governor Felix was a corrupt leader. For two years, he had hoped Paul would offer him a bribe to secure his release. But Paul wouldn't play his little game. Paul refused to compromise his integrity by bribing a public official. Governor Felix also knew that most of his subjects in Israel didn't like him. No wonder he had murdered hundreds, if not thousands, of the Jews across Israel over the prior five years. So to Governor Felix, leaving Paul in prison was like picking low-hanging fruit. It was an easy way to try to pacify the Jewish people. He kind of had to throw him a bone. Now, the right thing to do would be to try to make amends for his own mistakes, murdering all those Jews. But that would have been too hard. He took the easy way out by leaving Paul in prison, even though he knew full well Paul had done nothing to deserve sitting in prison for two years. That was the easy way out for Governor Felix. Felix. Well, after Paul had been incarcerated for those two years, Governor Felix was booted out of office. We know historically, according to the first century historian Josephus, that Emperor Nero summoned Governor Felix to Rome to explain his savage suppression of a dispute that had broken out between the Jews and the Syrians there in the city of Caesarea. And so he was ousted from his position as governor. And forced to come up to Rome and explain his actions, which really were unexplainable. And he probably would have been executed had it not been for his brother Pallas, who once again stepped forward and petitioned the emperor on his brother's behalf and saved his bacon once again. Well, as we get to verse 1 of Acts 25, in steps the new Roman governor of Judea. Governor Portius Festus. He's referred to as governor Festus from this point forward in Acts chapters 25 and 26. He ends up serving as governor, we know historically, for only two years. He ends up dying in office just two years after his hearing with the Apostle Paul that we're going to read about in this chapter today. Historians can't really tell us much about Portius Festus, but he seems to have been uh, more even-handed and a bit more just than his predecessor, Governor Felix. So possibly Paul will get a more fair shake with Governor Festus than he did with Governor Felix. Well, time will tell. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Take a look at this in your Bibles with me. Acts 25, beginning in verse 1. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there. Uh, I will do that, uh, or I, I, let me say it again, I goofed up. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there if he has done anything wrong. Hmm. Evidently some uh, Jewish nationalists who had uh, planned the ambush two years prior to that in Jerusalem had decided to stage another ambush. This time, if Paul was allowed to be transferred from Caesarea back to Jerusalem. And so here we have yet another uh, plot afoot uh, to stage an ambush and kill Paul before he can ever have a fair hearing. So those Jewish nationalists, they wanted Paul dead and they wanted him dead now. Picking up in verse four in chapter twenty five, as I read before, Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there if he has done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before them. Well, when Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against Paul, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. If I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. um, If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Well, after Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar, you will go. Forgive me for stumbling over the scripture a little bit there. I'm uh, discovering that I need some stronger magnifiers because I have trouble reading the print in my Bible. Anyway, uh, here we have in these verses, Governor Festus wisely telling the Jewish chief priests and leaders, no, he tells them, no when they asked him to transfer Paul from Caesarea back up to Jerusalem. Chances are he didn't know about their plot to ambush and assassinate Paul en route to Jerusalem, but he seems to have had pretty good antennas. He could tell something wasn't quite right with this request. Something smelled a little fishy. And so he tells them, no, he says, I'm going to give you a plan B instead. Instead of me bringing Paul back here to you, I need you to go with me back to where Paul already is. Okay, so after I'm done with my business here in Jerusalem in a week or so, you can join me in my trip back to Caesarea and present your charges against Paul there. Well, that's exactly what happens. According to verse six, after spending eight or ten days in Jerusalem, Governor Festus and the Jewish leaders all headed down to Caesarea. And the next day, Festus convened the court and he brought in the Apostle Paul. Well, unlike in the prior chapter, chapter 24, verses 5 and 6, Luke doesn't tell us what the specific charges are that the Jewish leaders leveled against Paul. He simply says here in verse 7, The Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. They most likely brought to Governor Felix the same basic charges that we saw them bringing against Paul in chapter 24 when they stood before Governor Felix. And once again, we looked at this last week. Those charges were, number one, a personal charge. He's a troublemaker. Charge number two, a political charge. He's the ringleader of an illegal cult. And then finally, the third charge, it was a religious charge. He tried to desecrate the holy temple in Jerusalem. So in all likelihood, they were the same basic charges. They'd leveled against him in Governor Felix's court two years earlier. Well, remember, two years earlier there in chapter 24, the lawyer Tertullus was bringing the charges on behalf of the Jewish leaders here in chapter 25, Tertullus the lawyer is nowhere to be found. So uh, the Jewish leaders appear to have decided to just present the case against Paul themselves. Maybe Tertullus was on vacation. Maybe he passed away. We don't know, but he's not there. Uh, Luke just gives us the quick summary of Paul's defense in verse eight. He says, I've done nothing wrong against the law or the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Although uh, Governor Festus seems to have been a more morally upright leader than his predecessor, Governor Felix, he wanted to do the Jews a favor, just like Governor Felix had wanted to do. So he asked Paul in verse nine, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Now, why on earth would a high ranking Roman governor ask permission of a prisoner to have his case transferred to a court in a different city. Why would he do that? Why was he asking for Paul's permission? Because that was law. That was the Roman law. Yet another benefit of being a Roman citizen. If you were in a legitimate courtroom in your district, you as a Roman citizen could deny a petition from the judge to have you shipped to another court. To have your case tried in another city, as long as you weren't charged with murder or or stealing or some very high crime and misdemeanor that had some sort of evidence backing it up. You had every right to say, no, I want to have my case tried right here where I stand. And so Paul had that right under Roman law. Paul gives this very respectful and eloquent response there in verses 10 and 11. He says, I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Well, Paul knew that he'd been given the runaround by Governor Felix for two years, and all indications were that Governor Festus wasn't gonna be a whole lot better. He might be getting the runaround from him as well. So it seemed to Paul that it was high time to get this show on the road. Jesus Christ had come to him two years earlier and promised him that he would get to share the good news of Christ there in the capital of the Roman Empire in the city of Rome itself. And so Paul must have figured the quickest way to get there and to stop these governors from dragging their feet is for me as a Roman citizen to use my prerogative, to use my right to appeal to the highest court in the land, the court of the Caesar himself there in the city of Rome. Of Rome, So Paul asked his court case to be transferred to Emperor Nero. Yes, the infamous Nero was emperor by now. It wasn't far enough along in Nero's reign for him to dip Christians in tar and light them on fire to light his palace grounds there in Rome. That hadn't come yet. This was earlier in Nero's reign, but he was emperor there at the time Paul has his case tried. Well, after talking briefly with his legal advisors, Governor Festus responds in verse 12, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Well, Paul's defense before Governor Festus is now his second to last defense recorded in the book of Acts. His final defense is recorded in chapter 26, and this time Paul isn't defending himself before a governor, he's defending himself before a king. And so we're going to look at chapter 26 here in the next few minutes. Historically, we know that this king that Paul was going to stand before in chapter 26 was King Herod Agrippa II. Here in chapter 26, he's just called King Agrippa. Well, King Agrippa came from a long line of morally corrupt leaders in Israel. You probably have heard of every one of his. Uh, father or grandfatherly uh, Herodian leaders. Uh, For instance, if you go back to the first Herod, King Herod the Great. uh, I like to refer to him as King Herod the not so great. King Herod the Great was he was the leader pictured over here on the left Uh, who famously murdered one of his own wives, murdered two of his own sons, and murdered all sorts of other people who were close to him because he feared that they were going to overthrow his kingdom and take the kingship away from him. So he would kill people around him, even if they were family. He was the Herod who killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem two years of age or younger when he heard that Jesus Christ had been born there in Bethlehem. Well, King Herod the Great died and then King Herod Antipas uh, became the ruler. He's sometimes called Herod the Tetrarch in the Gospels. And so King Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, uh, was one of King Herod the Great's sons. And he wasn't great either. It was uh, Herod Antipas, uh, Herod the Tetrarch, who uh, murdered John the Baptist by having him beheaded in prison uh, right after his niece had come in and seduced him with a dance. And so he was a scoundrel as well. Maybe not as bad as his dad, but he was pretty bad. And then the grandson of King Herod the Great was the first King Herod Agrippa. This was King Herod Agrippa the uh, first. He was the one who murdered the first apostle, uh, James, the, the brother of, uh, of John, son of Zebedee. And so he murdered James. We read about that earlier in the book of Acts. And I believe it's chapter 12. And uh, so the grandson wasn't too great. And then the great grandson of King Herod the Great. uh, That was the Herod that's talked about here in chapters 25 and 26. uh, The king referred to as King Agrippa. Well, King Agrippa may not have been as bad as his dad or granddad or great granddad, but uh, he wasn't too great. Historically, we know he lived with his sister. Her name is Bernice. She's talked about here in this chapter a couple times. And Bernice was his sister, but they lived together. And there was some pretty strong evidence that there was some sort of incestuous relationship going on with his own sister. And so this was not a moral family uh, of leaders. Well, anyways, uh, after Governor Festus. Uh, gives King Agrippa the 411 on the Apostle Paul. King Agrippa says this in Acts 24, verse 22. He says, I would like to hear this man for myself. To which Festus responds, no problem. Tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, King Agrippa and Bernice, his sister, come into the audience room with Governor Festus and dozens of high-ranking leaders and and military officers from around Caesarea. In all likelihood, some of the high-ranking Jewish leaders were there as well. The room is filled with these high-ranking, intimidating leaders. And as Paul is led into the room, all eyes are on him. They're all watching him. They're all listening to him. And I wonder... Is Paul's stomach kind of in knots just a little bit? Is the thought crossing his mind that Jesus prophecy is about to be fulfilled? Because back after Jesus had spoken to him on the road to Damascus, remember Jesus right after that had spoken to Ananias, one of his followers there in the city of Damascus. And had said, you know, Paul. Uh, This guy is coming to you, this 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 man, Saul, that, you know, is one that's persecuting the church. But I have set him apart to share my message with the Gentiles and with kings. And so that prophecy was about to come true as Paul would stand before King Agrippa, one of the kings of the Gentiles. So maybe that was going through his mind. All of Paul's hard work, all of his sacrifices on the mission field had led him to this moment. And we've got to ask, what would Paul say? What would Paul say in this wonderful moment where prophecy was about to be fulfilled? Well, we pick up in verse 1 of Acts chapter 26. Here's what we read, beginning in verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Just like Paul had before Governor Felix in the last chapter, Paul starts his speech with a captatio benevolentiae. Remember what that means? It's a complimentary opening statement. Paul mentions that he considers himself fortunate to stand and offer his defense before King Agrippa. And he also points out that King Agrippa is well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. And Paul begins sharing his personal testimony in verse four. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night, O King. It is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Uh, Why should any of this? why, Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I, too, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priests. I put many of the saints in prison and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and I tried to force them to blaspheme in my obsession against them. I even went to foreign cities to prosecute them. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests about Nuno King. As a light brighter than the sun, a light from heaven blazed around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, now get up and stand to your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Let's go ahead and stop there for now. Like most Gentiles in Paul's day, Governor Festus thought Paul's testimony was a little out there, a little nutty. He was thinking to himself, a bright light from heaven, brighter than the sun, come on, a mysterious voice, a vision. That sounds a little cuckoo. Sounds a little crazy to me. But the notion of someone rising from the dead Come on, that's just downright insane. Well, that's what's going through Festus's mind. So he blurts out there in verse 24, Hold it right there. You're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane, Paul. Festus's heckling is translated this way in the Living Bible. The Living Bible puts it this way, Paul, you are insane. Your long studying has broken your mind. <laughs> How many of you have ever been accused of having a broken brain, anyone? Sometimes, when we just can't think of a person's name or we're struggling with remembering something, sometimes we might think our own brain is broken, but that's not too complimentary when someone says your brain is broke. Well, that's basically what Festus is saying. Here's how the message uh, paraphrases Governor Festus's slam. The message says it this way: "Paul, you're crazy. You've read too many books. Spent too much time staring off into space. Get a grip on yourself. Get back in the real world. And so Festus was expressing what many in the room would have been thinking at the time. This notion of a resurrection from the dead sounds insane.